Our sermon text for today is Romans 10, 13 through 17. Please stand if you are able as I read. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If any young people would like a children's pad folio, please raise your hand, and someone will see that you get one. And then please be sure to return them to the Welcome Center after the service. So this is going to be a very uh, unique sermon this morning because it's going to be divided into three parts, and you're going to have three pastors each taking a part. And I promise you that we are going to make sure we have you home by dinner time. But it is a really unique opportunity because of the Acts 29 global gathering to, to take advantage of people, people's experiences and knowledge, people who ha- are investing their lives to see the gospel go into very hard places and very post-Christian places. So that's what we want to do this morning. You heard Romans 10 read God does have a plan. He has a plan to reach the nations, and his plan for his gospel to go forward is through his people going forward. His people going forward on what Isaiah and Paul call beautiful feet. But the reality is that where we go, the context we go into is going to affect the way that we go forward. And, and we, most of us know this intuitively, right? So if you were called to to bring the message of Jesus Christ to China, you would have to probably learn a new language. You know, if, if the calling on this church was to, to reach Muslim women, okay, that's the, it, the way we do it is going to change. It's probably only going to be done by women in this room. It's only going to be done behind closed doors and only going to happen after lots of trust has been built up in the relationship. Where you go changes how you do it. And in the same way, if you were to engage a 20th century Westerner in a very Bible literate culture, it's going to look different than when you engage a 21st century Westerner in a very post-Christian environment. The gospel doesn't change, the theology doesn't change, but how we go forward, it changes. It's affected by the context. So what we want to do here this morning, it's a little different than what we would normally do. We would normally teach Romans 10, we would exposit Romans 10, but this morning we want to simply flesh out Romans 10. How does, what does it look like for Romans 10 to be happening in a post-Christian context? I think this will be a very profitable exercise for us to walk through and think through. So the way we're going to do it, I'm going to talk about the lostness of our context. What is our context? Then I'm going to hand it over to Greg to talk about the challenges that living in a post-Christian context uh, presents. And then finally, we're going to go over to Jonathan and we're going to hear what it looks like as a church to wade into a post-Christian context fruitfully. So that's our plan. 
So let's talk about the lostness of Orlando because this isn't something that lots of us very naturally see. But before we go there, I want to ask ourselves, what makes a city lost? You know, what, what makes us identify Orlando as a lost post-Christian environment? And the answer is that any place is lost because of the hardness of our hearts. In Romans 1, obviously that precedes our text, we see that God has made himself known. And in some way we know God. In some way we know what can be known about God, yet we do not honor him, we do not thank him, and instead we exchange the glory of God for other things. And these other things are what the Bible calls our idols. And at our core, our idols are why we're lost. And so what I want to do very briefly is I want to talk about the history of this city and how that history informs the idols among us. All right, so the history. I am curious, how many of you grew up in Orlando, born and raised? Okay, I'm going to guess 30% of the room. Uh, I grew up in Orlando, and if you're my age or older, I think it's fair to say we now live in a very different city than we grew up in. My... My maternal grandparents moved here in 1952 when Orlando was nothing more than a cow town, 50,000 people. Every lake in the community was crystal clear. My paternal grandparents moved here in the 1930s when Orlando was about 27,000 people. Key West was the second largest city. And really the easiest way to get here was still the St. John's River. So this city has changed immensely and it's changed largely because four things happened. Four things happened that have caused this explosive growth that we've experienced over the past 70 years. Three of the four things happened within a 10-year time frame. So the first thing that happened was bug spray, all right? That was a big deal. The county, I know the county used to be Mesquite County, and in the 1800s, they changed it to Orange County. But it remained mosquito-infested until the 1950s when, all of a sudden, Central Florida looked less like naked and afraid and more like modern civilization. So bug spray happened. And then secondly, air condition happened. Air condition in the 1950s went into homes. Well, at least the master bedrooms. And, and if, you were, if you were a kid in Orlando in the 1950s, I've heard stories about y'all getting your pillows out of your bedroom and going to the hallway and sleeping at the foot of the door of your parents' room because that cool breeze came out all night long. So that was the second thing that contributed to the explosive growth. The third thing was World War II. Turns out Florida is a pretty great place to train soldiers. More army and navy pilots were trained here than any other state. And many soldiers, like my grandparents, they came here to the now, now inhabitable Central Florida Sunshine State. And they saw endless and year-long opportunities for recreation. That's going to be important when we talk about idols in a second. And then, as you would expect, the fourth thing happened 20 years later. The mouse came to town. And so these four things, they came together and and they allowed us to not have a state income tax, which was a big contributing factor as well. These four things happened fast forward about 50 to 70 years and we are now the the fifth fastest growing city in the United States and the number one most visited city in the United States welcoming 75 million people to the city in 2018 alone. So as you would expect this changes a city significantly. It changes the dynamics, it changes the idols, it changes the beliefs, it changes the values, it changes everything. 
Because now only 6% of the greater Orlando area would identify as a Bible-believing Christian. 6%. That puts us on par with New York City and Seattle. 6% of our context would believe something like what we believe. It should also come as no surprise then that Orlando is the most post-Christian city in the Southeast and by far the most de-churched city in the Southeast. So that is the number of people who used to go to church and don't anymore. Actually, 43% of our community used to go to church and doesn't anymore, which makes us the sixth most de-churched city in all of the United States of America. To me, I mean, it's really crazy just to think about how this changes my interaction with people in this city. I mean, up until, say, 20 years ago, if I met somebody and I'm having just small talk, I would assume two things about them. I would assume they're from here, and I would assume they went to church. Where'd you go to high school? Where'd you go to church? Just normal chit-chat. Now, I assume they're not from here, and I assume that they don't go to any kind of church. But what's interesting is that there is a natural lag between the changing beliefs of a city and the changing values of a city, all right? So there's a reason we feel different than New York and Seattle. They are post-Christian liberal cities. This is a term I learned from Greg. Their, Their transition happened a long time ago and their values have followed suit. Orlando, on the other hand, is a post-Christian traditional city because this this all has happened so fast that the basic values of our context haven't changed yet, which in many ways makes it a more dangerous spiritual environment because we live in a post-Christian city that still has basic biblical values so we can think the city is something that it's not. All right, so that's how we've come here. That's the history of the city. I want to finish by talking about the idols that grab hold of our heart, the things that we exchange the glory of God for. We have largely a city of comfortable and entertained people who cannot find contentment. A city of comfortable and entertained people who cannot find contentment. We have values, deep sense of family in the city, which is a good thing. But if you think about it, this is what's going to cause us to largely choose a, you know, a weekend or a day beach trip over engaging our lost friends. We have a very deep sense of being entertained, which is going to cause us to want to use our Disney annual passes instead of going to community group. It's going to cause us to want to go to the, the big, nice movie theater with the lean back chairs, you know, instead of maybe a dollar theater and get the opportunity to support a missionary, maybe. We have a deep sense of the outdoors, which is why we're going to choose golf and fishing over going to church often. Um, It's one of the reasons per capita we spend a lot more money and time in our community on making our bodies look a certain way than the average city around the world or even in the U.S. I think this has got to be one of the only places in the world where bad weather actually causes church attendance to increase. And then we have a deep value for the perfect retirement community. I mean, there's a reason the presidential candidates choose to go to the villages over Tampa. And I don't know anything that can kill a sense of eternal perspective the way that a deep desire and longing for the American retirement dream can. So 
I want you to hear me clearly. I don't think that any of these desires are inherently bad. I don't think that God is inherently displeased with any of these values that we have in our culture. But these are the things that we're exchanging the glory of God for as a city. So that makes them our idols. That's when God is displeased. Orlando is lost because it is tailor-made to promise you contentment through entertainment, through family-friendly activities, through the outdoors, but it will never deliver on that promise. It is perfectly situated to drain us, not provide for us, but drain us of our money, of our time, and our satisfaction. This is the city OGC is in. This is the city OGC is called to reach a rapidly changing, radically post-Christian city of almost three million people now. We live in a post-Christian city. So if we can agree on that, I want to bring Greg up to talk to us about the challenges that exist as we walk increasingly more into this post-Christian environment. Good morning. I am... um here to talk a little bit about what life in this post-Christian environment, in an environment for us in Manchester and the north of England, is really a gospel-hostile kind of culture, not a gospel-friendly or even a gospel-irrelevant, but gospel-hostile culture. And in some ways, those of us in the UK and in Europe are living a bit in your future, spiritually speaking, um, but in some ways, probably not, because I think what I'm going to talk about here, what we're going to hear about, what we've already heard about, I think is very much the reality of that's, that's what we're living in here in Orlando is a gospel hostile culture in some ways. It looks different, but it's spiritually very similar. Um, what, we're, what, I'm gonna, what I really want to talk about is uh, people who, a culture that's life, the life is living opposite to what Romans 10 was. A life, the, op- the very opposite of what the Romans 10 reading was. So what I want to talk about is that people are believing, but not in God. People are hearing and responding to messages, but not the gospel. And people are making disciples, just not of Jesus. So that first little section is uh, people are believing, but not in God. Because it's not like we can stop believing. As human beings, we're always believing something. The question is of what or, or of whom. And in a secular world that we live in, in England, all of our beliefs become squeezed, become compressed, become compartmentalized into the physical world, into what we can see, what we can control, what we can touch. But we all have longings beyond that. We all have infinite longings that that finite world cannot really satisfy, cannot really give contentment for. And so that means people everywhere are starving for the sacred. They are starving for the sacred. They're spiritually malnourished. I mean, most of Manchester is secular through and through. Um, if people are religious, they're probably Muslim because there's six times more practicing Muslims than there are Christians where we are. Uh, but most people, though, if you ask them about a spiritual question, even if you ask them what hope is like for them, they have no idea just because they've never really thought about it. It's not a topic of conversation. Um, we have some friends of ours who are Christians had some other neighbors um, over for dinner, and these other neighbors, uh, one of them uh, just went through chemo, went through cancer treatment, and it was kind of touch and go, I think, with her life for a bit. Um, but they had they'd come through it, and she was fine and healthy and everything. So they had them over for dinner, and they were asking them, they got actually on the topic of spiritual stuff and about God, which is amazing in itself. But they asked them, well, what did you, like, your spiritual life, or did belief in God, any, any of that kind of stuff help you? That's my, our Christian friends asking our, these other neighbors who weren't. And they took a moment, and they looked at each other, and they're like, I don't think I even know what you believe about God. I don't think we've never really had a conversation about spiritual life. 
These people have been married for like 20 years. They had kids. They'd grown up. They just went through this horrible suffering. And the topic of spiritual life or God or anything was never even on the table. They don't think they're oppressing belief, even though they are. Now, our neighborhood where we live in is a bit different. It's the classic kind of very spiritual but not really religious kind of area. It's um, an artsy, bohemian kind of area. Um, Its former church buildings are now Buddhist meditation centers. They're restaurants. They've been converted to nice flats. One's an Islamic high school. All these things are trying to satisfy hunger pains, but they will never be enough. Because consumerism, living for pleasure, mindfulness and self-help spirituality, all that stuff will let you down. They're never going to be able to do what you want them to do because we're meant for more. And all these things, all these other kind of things that we spend our time with are far too small to contain our hopes, to contain our beliefs, to contain our trust. So people are starved for the spiritual, and it's no surprise they're going to search after these things because desperate people live desperate lives. It's, it's how we do. It's how we survive. But people also are hearing, but not the gospel because there are all sorts of imposter messages of good news out there. A massive one for us in Europe, and I'm sure here in America as well, is freedom. But it's a certain kind of freedom. It's a freedom that says you can do whatever you want, whenever you do, whenever you want to do it, and however you want to do it. And anything or anyone that stops you from living in that way is, is holding you back, is repressing you, is stopping you from being a human fully alive. And Manchester, it's where the Industrial Revolution started. It's where trade unions started. It's where Karl Marx and Frederick Engels came up with the idea of socialism. It's where the atom was first split. It has all, it's where uh, women first got the right to vote. It's all these ideas that freedom truly is in our control, truly is something that we can, is within our power. And so that imposter message of freedom is multiplied in Manchester's. You must search within yourself to find out who you truly are. And then you have to search within yourself to get the confidence and the courage to live that true identity out. That's a massive burden. Then the flip side to this imposter message of freedom is another message, and I spoke about this earlier, is the message that the church is immoral. It's not that the church is irrelevant, but the church itself is immoral. Now, why is that? Well, if freedom is the highest goal and the best possible thing that anyone could live for is this complete and utter freedom, and the church says, maybe that's not the best way to live. You know, maybe there should be boundaries in how we live. Then the church doesn't become an instrument of, of, uh, of freeing, of redemption, of freedom. The church is now an instrument of repression. It's chains. And surely, haven't we chucked those chains like, away like generations ago? I mean, in our neighborhood, it's just two square miles um, there's 60,000 people who live in Tuscarora Isle, so it's, it's, it's dense. There are more families of lesbians in our neighborhood than in any other place in the UK. Manchester has a thriving gay village. So when you ask someone to come to a worship gathering you on a, with you on a Sunday, you can imagine the kind of looks that you get. Like, what in the world? Why would you ever do that? In a gospel hostile culture, you have to start much further back. People have brought in, into their lives all these other messages, consumerism, freedom, pleasure, materialism, all those other kind of things, and now they're further down these other paths. So how do I talk to my friend who was born a man, now identifies as a woman, is a great family friend of ours, probably knows more about church planting than most Christians know about church planting. How do I talk to him about the gospel? I mean, he even helped name our church. How do I help him talk about the gospel? It's as if I was to ask you, if you wanted to ride a unicycle, be like, look, Chuck, 
I got this really cool thing that I do on the weekends. I got this unicycle. And then um, actually one day a week, all of us, we get the, the unicycle manual out. And we all kind of read about unicycling. And we drive together, we roll around together. And then during the week, we, you know, we talk about, oh, how's your unicycle riding going? Oh, this. And then we sing songs about it. And then one day a week, we also we celebrate this unicycle life. Because unicycle life, is, it's, it's amazing. Don't you want to do that with me? You're like, I do not want to join a circus. I do not want to join a cult. I don't want any part of that. That's really, really weird. That's basically what it's like asking someone to come to church. That's how people view Christianity. That's how, not even just Christianity, just the spiritual world. Why would I ever need that? I've never even thought about that. Unicycles, I don't think my life is fine without it. So people are believing, but not in God. People are hearing, but not the gospel. And people are making disciples, but not of Jesus. Because as human beings, we cannot help but make disciples. It's who we are. The question is, what kind of disciples are we making? In the West, we are consumerists. We're creating disciples of the God of consumerism. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of money or a little money. We're all, we've all bought into the message that more stuff, more money makes your life good. But it's not just about money. It's also about consumerism applied to people, applied to time, to your gifts, other gifts, small groups, the church. We, consumerism says the world is for you to take and use as you want to make yourself better. And so our neighbors, they live in nice houses. They work in um, great businesses. They work for the BBC. They, they're doctors. They work in marketing. They're reporters. One works for the New Yorkers. All sorts of kind of, these are people who have made it in life, quote unquote. They're good disciples of the gods of consumerism. They buy certain things. They don't buy other certain things. Or they eat certain things and they definitely don't eat other certain things. They're self-sufficient because they must be self-sufficient. But some cracks begin when you apply consumerism to relationships. It leads to feeling isolated. These are feeling lonely. More people in the UK report feeling uh, more lonely in their relationships than fulfilled. People are more lonely than not. Suicide is the number one killer of people aged 20 to 34. So if you die from age 20 to 34, most likely you will die from killing yourself. People are lonely. People are desperate, and they're starved for the sacred. A side product of this is that very few people are Christians, um, and it can be lonely to live as a Christian. I mean, my friend um, Stephen, who's part of Redeemer, was fresh out of prison when he came to Redeemer for the first time. It's like the first time he came to any kind of proper worship gathering. He heard the gospel preached. God saved him. He came to lunch after, and the message of the gospel was confirmed by the way that people talked with him and cared for him. Now, he's an addict recovering from multiple drug addictions, and he comes into a church full of consumerist addicts, full of wannabe perfectionists. So when Stephen interacts with someone who has it all together, how does he feel? What message is he hearing? Does he feel like he has to get it all together before he's truly a Christian? Before he's truly a member of the church? That's the message he's heard everywhere. Get yourself together. Surely we have all heard that message. That's the message that consumerism gives you. Get it all together. I'm overjoyed he's come to faith, but what kind of disciples are we making? Now, as difficult as all that is, I think it's actually a massive amazing opportunity and fulfilling life to live as the church, calling people to be disciples of Jesus instead of all these other things. Because in the gospel hostile environment, as the church, we have the unique opportunity, a call to make disciples of Jesus. And the mission of the church is to lead a rebellion against all those things that we talked about. The, the, the church is the protest of the way the world is wrongly ordered. And we get to follow Jesus, our King. The church in the gospel hostile environment is an ideal place to be formed by the gospel. Because you have to dive deep into the message. Because all those other messages are coming full blast. It's a, the, a perfect place to discover our identity as God's family. 
because otherwise we're sunk, we're lonely, we're left to ourselves. And it's the perfect place um, to discover our identity as his missionaries, all of us, not just as kind of one-off events, but as an ongoing lifestyle for us all to live. Now, it's good for us, and it's good for other people. It's crazy. Maybe God was into something something like that. If we don't form our lives around Jesus' words and his family, we are dead as Christians. And if we don't speak the words of Jesus and live as his family to others, who will? Thankfully, we're not left to our own. And J.D. is going to come up and talk a little bit about what it means for Jesus to sit on the throne in spite of all of this and say, I am making all things new. There is no doubt that the West is moving further away from true biblical Christianity. Whether it's traditional, comfortable Orlando or progressive liberal Manchester, we're all globally witnessing a godless trend. Italy is different again. We're a post-Catholic Christian country. We have 150,000 licensed fortune-tellers and less than 50,000 priests. Evangelicals are way below 1% of the population. More than half of Italy's evangelicals now are no longer Italian. Of the 4,000 evangelical churches, less than 50 would align with uh, the great historic truths of the Reformation. Maybe 2,000 believers for a population of 60 million people. In surveys of students in two Italian universities recently, Palermo and Pisa, we recorded between 50 and 75% self-professing atheists or agnostics. And any remaining believers were mostly nominal and unconvinced. Increasingly, people in the West are tired and skeptical of religion and of God. At the same time, they're increasingly desperate for direction and for significance. Their pet interest becomes their religion, which in turn becomes the God that they worship, whether it be a cat Food, music, fame, or politics. That's what they believe in. And yet they still search for answers for meaning. And so the question is, how must the church in the West respond to this situation? Do we just update the music, throw the pews away, and make church a little more slick, maybe like a musical or a Hollywood production? Do we respond to the growing presence of unbelieving believers, false gospels like consumerism and disciples of all kinds and watered down me-pleasing messages and masters who who present that? How do we respond to Beyonce's flawed yet deeply spiritual way of looking at life two days ago, bigger? If you feel insignificant, you better think again, better wake up because you're part of something way bigger. You're part of something way bigger, not just a speck in the universe, not just some words in a Bible verse. You are the living word. How do we respond? How do we respond to the challenges that are before us? Well, It's very simple. We go back to Jesus. We stay with Jesus. When he saw the crowds, they were the same ones that you and I are looking at today. Crowds looking for something, not happy with the way they're living. As we question what we must be doing to be effective and fruitful, we need to always stay focused on Jesus and let him define the narrative that he is calling us to live, be it in Orlando, in Manchester, or in Palermo. Three very simple things. First of all, we're called to see their story. Matthew chapter 9 verse 36 is a basis for that. In order to effectively reach out to a lost world wherever, we need to see their story. Recently, a church planter in Rome told me that he's been there for five years, done a lot of activity, and has seen encouraging growth in his church, but not from conversions, simply migration of other believers from other churches. So two reactions. 
On the one hand, yes, we are called to be faithful, but we're also called to assess. We need to ask the question, do we know how to engage with people? Do we even speak the same language? Do we even know them? You see, when Jesus met the woman at the well, he spoke to her of the gospel, but he used water as a central element. When Paul proclaimed the gospel of the resurrection in Athens, he carefully built his message, quoting contemporary poets and philosophers. Before preaching about the unknown God in Athens, he'd spent time looking at their city and observing their story. We need to be careful observers of the context around. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw the crowds as they really were, sheep without a shepherd, distressed and dispirited, and he had compassion on them. As Jesus looks out today and sees the masses in Orlando, Greater Manchester and Palermo, he sees their story and he feels their need. So to be fruitful, the Western church needs to significantly engage with people's stories. Secondly, we need to know his story. He is the Lord of the harvest. More significantly than knowing their story, we need to know his story. If we want to effectively reach the context around, we need to know who he is and what his plan is. We need to know the gospel. We need to know that God is omnipotent, the sovereign one who's in the business of bringing glory to his own name. We need to recover or maybe develop for the first time a robust theology of God. Not to see him as a product we have to carefully market and sell. Jonah's great cry, salvation belongs to the Lord, is our conviction. Take away the God who saves and we end up paranoid and way beyond our league. But the harvest is his and the laborers are his. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. And his plan is to effectively reach post-everything Europe by the gospel, post-Christian America by the gospel, through communities of light, churches built around the sufficiency of Scripture, empowered and dependent not on a gimmicky sales product, not making the user experience central, not weakening the message of the gospel, but churches that plant churches. And the final scene is already written. All that the Father has given to the Son will come. And there will be a glorious crowd of saved people from every people, tribe, and tongue, be they American, English, or Sicilian. Certainly, this is the awesome God who works in power. John Piper says, work really hard, morning until night. Be a worker and do not trust in your own work. Trust in God. Plan hard, but don't trust your plans. Trust in God. Remember, the gospel mission, our call, it's all about him. So to be fruitful, the Western church needs to significantly engage with God's story. And finally, live it and tell it. We are called to be laborers in the harvest. So what must the church today be doing to be fruitful? Whether it's in Florida or in northern England or in Sicily. And here are six suggestions with which I end this morning. And I trust that these will be helpful to you, challenging, maybe uncomfortable. As I was traveling through Orlando this morning, coming to the other side of the city, I saw a city which is enamored with entertainment, but not just the city, but everybody's coming here for that. It's a comfortable way for many people of living. And here are six suggestions on living it and telling it. First of all, focus. Always focus on him. 
always focus on God and his glory. Praise him. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out, to thrust out laborers into his harvest. Secondly, live. Live as laborers who are thrust out into the harvest field. You're to live out the truth of the gospel. In the skeptical, saturated West, words have lost their meaning. To the unchurched, they mean nothing. To the de-churched, they mean very little. They're weighed down by baggage, by misunderstandings. Christian means little to nothing for many. God is to be understood on the basis of experiences, the power of media, and reactive responses, sometimes to trauma, other times to disappointment. As Christians, we are to live such lives that people will see we are a distinct community. This is much more than unicycle. We need to be a distinctly gospel-centered community of light. Before doing church, we need to be being church. Thirdly, tell. As they see us live and point to Jesus, we will then be able to tell. There is no gospel if there is no proclamation. And what is the gospel? What are you telling people? In what way does the faithful gospel connect and intersect with their story? There's a sense of exposing their real state, but also bringing very real added value to their lives. The better story, the story they're all looking for, it needs to be told. The harvest, Scripture tells us, Jesus said, is plentiful. The story people live leaves them desperately searching for the thing they know they really need, but they don't have and they can't find. Maybe this morning you're looking for something. And you think the church is going to satisfy you. The better story is Jesus. It's not religion. It's not a church. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, platforms of opportunity. I love this concept. The Western church needs to identify platforms of opportunity and intentionally, courageously, and prayerfully live and tell out the gospel. We need to go where people are. We don't need to always be inviting them to enter our world. We need to enter their world. We need to identify with them, learn their language, enter into their stories, and seek for platforms of opportunity. We want to engage with the distressed and the dispirited. We want to retell the story of the gospel into their lives, into their stories. Fifthly, disciples. The Western church needs to commit to church planting. Distinct gospel-centered communities of light and salt made of disciples of Jesus Christ who live for his glory in all they do and exist to proclaim his glory among the people. We need to redefine, redeploy, and recommit to mission, to evangelism. We need to be asking the question all the time, how do we reach Orlando? How do we reach Manchester? How do we reach Palermo? And sixthly and finally, churches. We're not looking just for groups of disciples who randomly have coffee together and that's it. We're looking to see churches planted. These are communities which see the harvest, which know the Lord of the harvest, and which are full of eager workers. And churches are called on mission. It's not just the gifted pioneer evangelist, the charismatic apostolic figure. It's churches planting churches that plant churches that plant churches. It's ordinary Christians in their everyday life intentionally living and telling, yes, even you. To be fruitful, the Western church needs to significantly live and tell out the gospel. Our churches need to be saturated in a gospel-centered culture where Jesus becomes not one of many, but the defining element. 
as individuals, we need to be living in the ocean of His grace and loving it. And people see that we love it. More than methodologies, we need to have passion and love for our Lord and Savior. And that brings community to be significant. It's so different. That is what will take us beyond comfort, complacency. John Stott in 1974, 45 years ago, with others, drew up a significant document called the Lausanne Covenant. And in it, there are these words, which are so relevant today. Evangelization requires the whole church to take the whole gospel to the whole world. That is the call to us today in Orlando, in Manchester, and in Palermo. Shall we pray? Father, as we look at the example of Jesus, who came and saw our story, and he saw our lives, he saw exactly how we were, like sheep without a shepherd. And he, the good shepherd, came. And he, the good shepherd, gave his life. He brought good news for those who were desperate and with no good news. And Lord, I just pray that you might, by your spirit, work in lives, even here this morning, and be thrusting workers out into the mission field, into the harvest field. Thank you, Lord, because there's as much need here in Orlando as in Sicily and in Manchester. But you call us to different places to respond in obedience to your call. And I just pray that you might be by your spirit working in our lives, taking us out of that complacency and that comfort zone which is so easy to fall into. And that instead of golf, instead of entertainment, instead of great food, that our passion might be for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his kingdom and for his glory. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we forget that we're called to be on mission. Forgive us when we as churches are so easily falling into the trap of routine and habit forgetting that outside, beyond us, and sometimes even within our walls, there's so much need. And Lord, I just pray that this morning, that you might face us again with the wonder and the glory of this message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which changes everything, the story that everybody really wants, really need, but they don't know it. Enable and empower us to go in the power of your Spirit with Jesus and to take that message to the people around. For your glory, in Jesus' name.